As the kids are running out the door, I just want you to know, Mel, that my son uh, very emphatically uh, said that he did things wrong. So I, I have all of these witnesses uh, to, to, to re- reinforce that. Uh, so I thought that was humorous. Thank you, Mel. Um, it's good to see you all. My name's Eric. For those of you I haven't met, good morning. Welcome. Uh, this week, I, I spent time uh, just kind of wandering around on the internet for a few minutes. Not much, because I had a lot going on. Uh, but I ran across an article that was on how to write a good story. And I was like, ooh, that sounds interesting. So I clicked on it. And I'm reading through, and it was much longer than I was anticipating. It was far more detailed. There were so many different tips and tricks and things on how to craft a really compelling and interesting story. And I was beginning to kind of lose interest as I saw charts and graphs and way too much information. And I was like, you know what? There's actually a better solution to this problem. If you want to write a really good story, this is a very small minority of people that can do this, but there's a really easy way to write a good story. It's easy. Just be God. Jesus is the best storyteller. You think about the, this, the different parables and stories he taught over the years. They're the most compelling things that have saturated into cultures over the years. And they've, they've sunk into our cultural vocabulary. Things like the Good Samaritan. Things like the lost parable, or the, the lost coin, the lost sheep. Uh, the prodigal son, all these different things from, from, from thousands of years ago, they're still alive and well today because they're such compelling s- stories. And they relate to everyday life because Jesus understands what's going on. Hint, he's God, right? He understands all the things that are going on inside of life. He understands the issues that people face. And so he's capable of crafting stories that are perfectly appropriate for the moment And God is no different. It should come as no surprise that God spent many, many years crafting a story over thousands of years of the nation of Israel. It occupies most of your Bible. And this morning we're going to step into a chapter of that story that is very dark. It's not the kind of part of the the book where you necessarily jump to right away because the book of Hosea, as you just heard a very brief summary of it, which is great, I wasn't planning on summarizing it anyway, so in case you were wondering what the book's about, there it was. Um, It's not a great time in Israel's history. Things are rough. Like The the phrase I'm going to use a lot this morning will be, it's spiritually dark. There's a lot of bad things going on. On the surface... Seems like things are actually going okay. We'll talk about that a little bit too. But down underneath, there's a lot of problems going on in the nation of Israel at this time. Um, we'll, we'll dive into that fully. But against that backdrop, against the, the, the story, kind of as we think about how dark it is, against that backdrop, we're going to see God's love set in contrast. We're going to see what God is like to people in a very dark situation. And that is going to be what we're going to observe as we go through this text this morning. And so some refresh, just reminder of some things that are going on historically and just kind of big picture of what's going on in the book of Hosea before we read it. Just a reminder, we're in the period of time where there's the split kingdom. We've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So Israel is divided in two. We're sitting probably about maybe 20 to 50 years before the northern kingdom is going to be dragged off by Assyria and, and go away. So right before that window of time, there's a lot of Baal worship going on too. Religiously, there's a lot of mixture of, of other neighboring gods mixed in with God. There was a brief break with Jehu in 2 Kings 10, but right after that, things are fully back to, to pagan idolatry, just 
going crazy, and things are not good. There's political instability as well. During the period of time where there's four kings in the south, there's seven kings in the north. We've got people paying off people. We've got people assassinating people. uh, Massive political upheaval. But strangely enough, there's actually some economic prosperity. Things are going pretty good. Things are looking up. Uh, And you might say, how's that? Well, the world power at the time, Assyria, is off minding its own business dealing with other problems and kind of leaving the northern kingdom alone. And so things are looking up a little bit. The borders of the northern kingdom are actually expanding. And so people are going, hey, you know, maybe this whole, like, worshiping multiple gods thing, maybe it's working out. Maybe we should do that. But in the backdrop of all of that, you've got massive spiritual darkness. So let's go to Hosea chapter 3. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. So if you have a Bible, an electronic device that can get there, I give you the time right now to do that. Hosea chapter 3. Uh, Hosea is located about 12 books to the left of Matthew, towards the center of your Bible. So I'll give you just a moment. And when you have it, go ahead and stand up and join me as we read God's Word. And just for some context, I'll be reading from ESV this morning. Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man, and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and a leketh of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. You can go ahead and be seated. So as we look at this text, there's not... A lot of verses here. Initially, it doesn't seem to be a lot here, and we've heard a very brief summary of it, but I think there's four key things we can draw. This is a prophetic act. There are four key points that we can draw out from this morning, and so just kind of a reminder of what's going on. The first thing, let's look back at the text, verse 1, it says, and the Lord said to me. So this is not just a story for the sake of a story. This is a story with a specific purpose. It's a prophecy. It is being told for a very specific reason, pointing forwards towards something in the future. And if we we fail to observe that at the very outset, we're going to come to some very wrong conclusions. Tell you about those later. But we've already got a little bit of prophecy occurring already. Flip back to chapter 1, just as a quick recap, because we only spent one other week so far in Hosea. And if you happen to have missed it last week, good to remind ourselves of what's going on. At the outset of things, chapter 1, verse 2, again, to this being prophetic, go take, your wife, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So God's like, hey, I got a special job for you. It's not very fun, but go do this. Uh, and you're like, that's in the Bible. It is. Um, but either way, like there, there's something very specific Hosea is being called to, and it's very shocking. And there's something that's happened between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Because as, as Mel just summarized, like they've had three kids. And then all of a sudden, chapter 3, she's out of the picture. And so it kind of leaves you wondering, like, why? Where did she go? What happened? 
Um, and, and the short answer is we just don't know. So if you're wondering, like, what happened, I don't know, and it doesn't say, because, again, it's prophetic, and you don't necessarily need the answer to that. Um, it, all that we know is God's like, hey, go get her back. And he does, which is really good news, because it's symbolic. But it, it, we need to ask really quickly, like, is this wrong? Is it wrong for Hosea to go after his wife, right? Like, you read the description of her, and you're like, I don't know, maybe this isn't a good idea, or maybe this is wrong. But I, I don't think it is. You look at the way it's worded. If you're looking at the ESV, it says, go love a, a, a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. So they're still married at this point. Like There's not been an additional marriage. The, he is absolutely right to go, go find her, chase after her. But under the Levitical law, he's under no compulsion to do that. As a matter of fact, he, is, he has every right to be like death penalty for both of you. But he doesn't. So, while not necessary that chapter 3 occur, uh, it's not wrong either. Like, most of us would be like, I don't know. Like, you don't need to. She doesn't seem to be interested in reconciling. Like, there is some degree. If you look at this and you're like, I mean, it's not required by any means. And I would argue that even in chapter 1, like some of his kids, they're, not, they're probably not even his and so she's not been terribly faithful. So kind of rational people in this situation would be like, I don't know, it's probably not necessary. But he does. He does go, go chase after her. And look at verse 1 here, because there's something very key that runs through the rest of this passage. We have this word love. It happens four times. It says, go again, love a woman who's loved by another man. And as an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel though they turn and love other gods and cakes of raisins. There's this symmetry here. There's this match that's occurring between what's going on. And it's to try to, to illustrate that this is a very dark marriage, and the situation right now spiritually is very dark. God's like, this is not good. I love you, but you don't love me. This is the, the, the prophetic word from the prophet. So what's his point here? I think the first point he comes to is that God's love shines brighter than all the spiritual darkness around it. You look at what God is going to do through this man and his marriage to display the love of God against a backdrop of unfaithfulness. And God is like, hey, that's exactly what's going on with me and you, Israel. That's what we look like. And so here is, here, here is God trying to encourage the people of Israel, going, I see all of that. I see all the bad things that are occurring, and I still love you. Let's just spend a moment reinforcing the idea that things were bad, though. Because, I don't know about you, 2,700 years ago was a long time ago, um, and I don't remember all the historical things that are going on, so let's refresh ourselves really quick. The brief summary in the back half of verse 1 says, though they turned to other gods. You're like, that's bad right? Like, we all agree on that. We're like, that makes sense. I could see why God would not be happy about that. But then we get, and love cakes of raisin. And you're like, good to know that God hates oatmeal raisin cookies as much as I do, but it's not very helpful. Um, sorry, it's just there. Um, either way, like, you read that and you're like, what does that mean? Like, that's very weird. And you look in the rest of Scripture, and it's not super helpful. Like, you can get some hints, and I think there's, there's a case to be built here. But the first occurrence of it is in 1 Samuel 6, where David's giving it out almost as a party favor. It's like, something good. And you're like, 
Okay, uh, that's not super helpful. It also shows up in the Song of Solomon, and it's referred to as a delicacy, like something desirable. And you're like, well, that's still not helping because this is a very negative context. And God seems very, very specifically against what's going on here. Um, And there is an occurrence of the word very similar in Jeremiah that gives us a hint that it's probably involved in some sort of form of cultic worship. Something's going on where, where these are being used in the worship of foreign gods. So that's most likely what's going on here. So I think helpful to realize that's what God is specifically very displeased with. Um, as we get later into the book of Hosea, it'll get more specific as we look at chapter 10 and other places like that. Um, but just as kind of a reminder of the history going on in this time period, um, I, I kind of jokingly refer to all the kings of the north as frowny face kings because I, I put smiley faces and frowny faces next to all the kings in my Bible uh, through Kings and Chronicles, and like every single one of them is bad in the north. They're all bad, every single one, for 200 years, like a long time too. And God against all of this is like, I love you. Keep that in mind. Let's, let's do a brief little field trip to the Old Testament here. So turn to the left, let's go to Deuteronomy 12. So if you've got a Bible, let's flip over to Deuteronomy 12. Let's think about how bad things are for a brief moment. I think it sets the stage for all the rest of the things that we're about to read this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 29, says, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land. So when you go into the promised land, verse 30, chapter 12, Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you don't inquire about their gods, saying, hmm, How did they work? How did these nations serve their gods? That I might also do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you shall be careful to do. Shall not add to it or take from it. So God, at the outset, right before they're about to walk in, is like, don't do this. What does the northern kingdom do? They do that, right? Let's go over to 2 Kings. 2 Kings 17. Flip to the right a few books. 2 Kings 17, this is right at the fall of Israel. Chapter 17 of 2 Kings, verse 6. In the ninth year, the king of Hosea, not to be confused with Hosea, Hosea, anyway. Uh, king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, placed them in the Holah and on the harbor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And, and the author of Kings says, this occurred... Because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the custom of the kings of Israel had practiced, which were all bad. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God the things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all the towns, from the watchtowers to the fortified cities. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. They served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel 
and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways. Keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent you by my servants, the prophets. But they wouldn't listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been who had, did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenants and he made with, that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he had given them. They went after false idols. They became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all of the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves two metal images of calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings. They used divination and omens, and they sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord provoking him to anger. And therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel. He removed them from out of his sight, and none was left of the tribe of Judah. Right? Like, I think it's helpful to read that. It's helpful to be reminded of what was going on. Right? In the midst of all of this, God is like, yeah, I still love those people. Them? Really? Really, God? Are you sure? The people that twice over, it says, provoked them to evil. And God's like, yeah, I love them. I'm going to send my prophets. And when you think about the way that God shows his love, it's very compelling, right? Like, he doesn't just send a guy to stand on the street corner. He sends Hosea and uses Hosea's marriage, which would have been scandalous, right? Like, that would have been the talk of the town. Hey, what's the prophet of God up to right now? Oh, well, you know, his wife's been cheating on him. Yeah, what's going on? Oh, he went after her again. Really? Oh. She's still... Like, that would have been the talk of the town. God's trying to use something very clever, something very compelling, something very, like, hard to ignore to get the people of God's attention. The conversation would have been a little less pleasant when it turned to, what's what's the prophet of God trying to say by all that? It's like, oh. Oh, we're, we're his wife. Oh. Okay, we've been unfaithful to God. Anyway, so let's keep talking about other things, right? Like, that would have been very uncomfortable. But I think the message for us is, is very similar, right? Like, as we look at this passage, we're reminded of the love of God towards us when we were wayward for God, from God. When we were in disobedience from him, walking away from him, we're reminded of God's love towards us in spiritual darkness, God is a loving God. We can rejoice in knowing that. God is the kind of God that loves people who are disobedient from him, wandering from him, far from him. He's the kind of God that, as 2 Timothy 3, 2 reminds us, like we loved ourselves. We were lovers of self. John 3, 19 reminds us like we love the darkness. Like I could just keep going on and on of reminders of the condition that we were in before God showed his love towards us. And God's like, hey, I love you. I love you, Israel. And as we look at our own sin, so comforting to know that, that God loves us in that way. It should be really encouraging. Like, are you amazed, Christian, that God loves you? Is that kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, God loves you, loves me, yeah. We talked about that over, over family camp as we went through John 3.16. I, I think for, for people who aren't Christians, too, I think this is very helpful to hear this story because you think about Christians and we're like frequently criticized for, for trying to articulate the love of God and having a really hard time 
Because it's hard. It's hard to truly articulate the depth of the love of God and not trivialize it. Really hard. It is. And so you see how God's like, I don't want to just send a guy that stands on the street corner and says, hey, I love you. No, I'm going to act it out in front of you to show you how much I love you. It's very encouraging. The next thing we see in this story as we continue on is verse 2. So if you're not back in Hosea, flip back over to Hosea chapter 3. As we look at this, we have the next part of the prophecy. And it's weird. There's no way around it. Verse 2 says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and lecketh of barley. And the first observation is, uh, excuse me? Right? You're like, what does that mean? And when you study it more closely, there's some even weirder things about it. The first one is that word that's translated bought in the ESV. It actually has this idea of haggling or negotiating. We're like, okay. And we see that it, verse 2 also shifts the first person. So now Hosea is telling the story from, from the first-hand perspective. You're like, okay, that's, that's interesting too. And who's getting the payment is completely unanswered. We're like, I don't know who this is going to. Is it going to, to Gomer? Is it going to some, some organization, some person? Like, I, I just don't understand. And when you look at the payment, the payment doesn't make sense either. It's 15 shekels of silver, and I know you don't necessarily uh, deal in shekels very often, but like half an ounce, probably. So I don't know what the societal value on that was at the time, but it probably wasn't much is the hint. Uh, we don't know exactly. And then the, the barley, the measurement of that, probably around like 45 gallons. So you can imagine one of those 50-gallon drums uh, that's holding down the tent out there just filled with a relatively inexpensive grain. So not a lot of money, and it's weird. Like it's a weird way to, to express a financial transaction. And so we're kind of left with, like, what's going on here? But again, like I said to you earlier, remind yourself, this is prophetic. So this is God trying to very specifically record key occurrences of the story for the sake of us and for the sake of the audience. So this right here occurred for a reason. We're being invited to to look at this and analyze it and figure out why it's there. And I think the omitted facts are actually intentional. It's trying to get you to focus in on the fact that Hosea has to redeem his wife. It's a prophetic anticipation of God's love acting redemptively. And you're like, oh, right? Like, the light bulbs start turning on. You're like, that sounds familiar, right? Like, that seems to make some sense. But let's continue to look at that. So it's, it's definitely something prophetic. It's something that is very specifically being told for the sake of a future event that's going to occur. Something about redemption. And it's not a lot of money either, right? Like, it's definitely not a big sum of money, but you do sense in the account, you've got him paying silver, which would be a normal way of paying for something, but then barley. And that's kind of strange, and even I think KJV talks about wine, but that's whole side subject of how to translate a few words. Um, But either way, like, there is this sense of, like, Hosea's like, all right, um, I got this, and I got that over there. Can I have my wife back? To, To some unknown entity. 
And I want you to just pause for a moment because there, there's something that's going on in your mind if you're a normal human being and you're like, this is offensive. Right? This is offensive. You're like, there's a woman being bought for money and you're right. And you're right to be offended. And God is so offended by a society that's doing this that he's going to judge them soon. So if you're, you're like, hey, this doesn't sound good, God doesn't think so either, okay? The real offense of verse 2, though, I think we miss. The real offense is that when the nation of Israel heard this verse, they were like, I don't need to be bought. I don't need to be redeemed. I'm not in trouble. What do I need God for? What's he to do with me? It's the attitude that the nation of Israel had when they heard the story going, wait, we're in trouble right now? We need to be gotten out of trouble? What do you mean? That's ridiculous. That's outlandish. It it drove home the point to them that there was a problem, and they didn't think there was a problem. So this is a reminder. Like, have you had this, this occurrence when you're telling the gospel to someone, right? Like, the gospel by itself has got a little bit of an edge. It's like, by the way, you're not square with God right now. That's unpleasant. The good news of this passage is that God provides not only the, 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 uh, the payment, he's also the person paid, and he's the payee. And so that's why it's left open-ended, It's left open-ended because it's talking about the redemption that's coming from Christ, so it intentionally leaves open-ended who's getting paid because it doesn't work. The prophetic analogy breaks because there's absolutely nothing about Hosea that can pay himself in the way that God pays himself through Christ. So there's something very strange about this passage. There's also something very beautiful about it. It's a good reminder of how God loves us in the spiritual darkness. God redeems us in his love. He's very kind to us. He pays the price. I think it's very encouraging. So look at this verse, although very broken in the set of occurrences. Again, against the backdrop of spiritual darkness. Like, this is not a good chapter in Israel's history. Things are not good right now. But here's God going... I'll pay the price to fix this. Something has happened that's wrong. I'm going to jump in, and I'm going to be the one who fixes it, even though I did nothing wrong. Isn't that beautiful? That's what God did in Christ. God is like, the world has sinned against me, but I'm going to provide the sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, all of the sacrificial system points forward towards what is anticipated in Christ. But we as New Testament believers, we can look back and be like, yes, I know exactly how God paid for that. Our, righteous, our, our offense against a holy and righteous God was paid for and is, is paid in full. That should be great comfort to us as Christians. And this, if you're like, Eric, you're just reading stuff into the text. That's what you're doing right now. I just know it. Preacher guy is going to preach, and he's just going to go for it. I don't think I am, though. Verse 5, we'll talk about it in a couple minutes, clearly points forward towards Christ. We'll get there in just a minute. So if that's what you're thinking, I just want to assure you, like I, this is prophetically looking forward. God is granting the people of Israel hope in darkness, that he loves them, he cares for them. And what good is this for us today as Christians? 
This is a functional reminder that we were bought with a price. Right? We've been preaching through 1 Corinthians. Do you remember the line of reasoning that Paul takes against the Corinthian church, against the backdrop of sexual sin? What does he do? He says, hey, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, we glorify God with your body. Like, like, he's, like in the light of sin that is so tempting, remember what price was paid for you to bring you to right relationship with God. And so th- this is an encouragement for us if we're, in Christi- if we're in Christ. Like if we're Christians, this should be greatly encouraging to us to remind us of what it cost God to bring us back into right relationship with him. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that a source of joy for you? Like aren't you like so relieved... And even as Andrew started off our worship service this morning, like, you can't pay God back. There's just no way. And I think this is encouraging, too, for people who haven't come to a place in trusting Christ. Like, there's, there's nothing you can do to pay to get yourself out of this situation. You, you can't provide enough into the equation to make yourself right with God. God is the one who can provide that. He's the only one who can, and according to this, prophetically, there's the anticipation that he will. God's going to pay. God is going to pay to reconcile sinful humanity back to him. That's great news. It means we don't have to be working. Like, we do in response to it, but there's nothing we can add to make ourselves right with God. It's very encouraging to realize that God redeems As we think about that, though, there is an element of verse 1 and 2 that, as we even mentioned in 2 Kings, that's a warning here, right? Like, we're we're about 20 years out from the captivity of when Assyria is going to come in and and drag everyone off, give or take a few years. And the clock's ticking, right? Like, things aren't looking good, things aren't looking up. And verse 1 and 2 is a warning of, like, guys, you got to... You've got to realize your condition. Realize where you are. Trust God. Like, come back to him. And so that's where the text turns. Verse 3 and 4. Let's look at those. So what's the next part of the prophecy here? Verse 3. It said, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, and so will I also be to you. So Hosea is going, hey, all of the, 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 the corruption that has entered into our relationship needs to end. Every single last piece of it. We, we, we need to be completely back to a place of, of absolute purity. Right back to where it started. That, that's where things need to be, to, to be going. And it, there is an indication that Hosea is very patiently going to wait and provide a place for that to occur. I think just that in and of itself should shock us. That's very gracious. I don't think most of us would uh, probably uh, be able to say, and I said these things. Um, there's something very just beautiful about the way the prophet is re- handling the situation. Anyway, that's a freebie. That was in my notes. Enjoy. Um, either way, I think it's really helpful to look at verse 3, right? Like, it's very helpful. And the message is very clearly spelled out, right? You don't have to guess, like, hmm, I wonder what verse 3 means. I don't know. Hmm. Verse 4 answers the question. So, that's nice. So, we can very clearly find out what verse 4 
tells us. And I think in just kind of, you know, my own summary of things, God's love, verse 4, talks about how it requires exclusivity away from the spiritual darkness. So there's meaning to this whole thing. We don't have to guess. We don't have to be like, oh, I wonder what the break is about. God is declaring to the people of Israel that God is not interested in sharing. God is not interested in sharing them with other gods. It's a call to the people of Israel to abandon it all. Be done. Let's look at verse 4. It says, For the children of Israel shall dwell for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household god. So let's go through that list real quick. Because some of those things are not necessarily bad. So, king or prince. Not bad, necessarily. Like, they are bad if they're not in submission to God, which most of their kings weren't, actually. All of them, as I mentioned earlier. So, bad, but not necessarily. Sacrifice, uh, not necessarily bad, right? Like, if done in a heart of faith and for the right reason, like, a good thing. But as we'll read later in Hosea, very clearly they were doing sacrifices bad and wrong. So, clearly bad. Pillars, those are just flat out bad. Those were associated with likely worship of Astra, possibly Baal, maybe a mixture of both. Either way, not a good thing. Moving on to ephods. Ephods were a part of the priestly garment. And you're like, that's not necessarily bad. But as Judges reminds us, Judges chapter 8, the uh, the ephod that Gideon had, uh, that became a bad thing. And so ephods even can be bad, and clearly there must have been something that was going on in the moment that was bad about those as well. And then the last one is household gods. Um, and you're like, well, obviously, that's bad too. So pretty easy list to, to kind of sift through and look at. And you might say, okay, so God is, is saying, we need a break. We need a break from everything that is going to potentially cause problems. This is a little bit easier for us to read because we don't have to guess. I wonder what that means. It's a little bit easier because we can look at the history books and see, oh, God's talking about Assyria coming off and dragging them off, and the sacrifices are going to end, the kings are going to be done. All of these different things are very clearly going to come to an end in about 722 B.C., so... Pretty easy to see, like, the beginning of that. And God is trying to indicate, hey, you have not done what I have instructed you to do. I've sent multiple people to try to to correct you and rescue you out of this. And you're like, no, don't want to do it. And so God's like, new strategy. We're going to do a little bit of a field trip, and it won't be a fun one. We're going to go off to a foreign land. And that is what happens very quickly. Now, you might say, okay, well, then when does this period of time in verse 3 and 4 end? Um, And I would say, let's just take a field trip back over to 2 Kings 17 real quick. Going back over there, we get the idea that after the nation of Israel gets carried off, something rather humorous occurs. It's always fun to have a brief moment of humor in the Bible when things are so dark. In verse 25 of chapter 17, all the people get dragged off. The king of Assyria puts new people on the land, and the new people of the land were not fearing the Lord, verse 25. And so God sent some lions amongst them to start killing them because they weren't fearing the Lord. You're like, that's in the Bible, okay? And so the king of Assyria, being slightly superstitious, was like, well, send their priests back. 
You know, like maybe they just need to worship their gods. The regional gods are angry. Like just send some of their, their priestly people back. And as Hosea chapter 4 next week will remind us their priests were not good, so it didn't help. And we know that because it says that in verse 20, actually, sorry, verse 32. And so what ends up happening is that the people in the land fear the Lord and they appoint from amongst themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrifice for them, the shrines and the high places. And they feared the Lord, but they also served other gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. And verse 41 reminds us that it's still going on even at the time this was written. So kind of just keeps going and keeps going. And I want to remind you some very like basic, obvious observations. Um, the sacrifices are not happening right now. They don't have kings. All of the things that we would anticipate seeing uh, on the backside of this haven't happened yet. So they're still there, right? Like this is still going on here. This is a period of discipline. This is a period of God going, okay, I'm going to deal with this. I still love you. Verse 5 is again the indication that God's not done at verse 3 and 4, which is really good news. It's Good to be reminded of that. But verse 3 and 4, we need to dwell in for a moment and realize that God takes things very seriously. He's like, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to purify. I'm going to address all the things that are going on, and I'm going to do something about it. So, in the midst of all that, like, what can we learn? I think verse 3 and 4 are very helpful. I, I was uh, stumbling around the... Um, Second least encouraging place on the internet, Reddit, which is kind of a, um, dis- it's like an endless comment thread. It's not exactly the most edifying thing, but sometimes there's fun stuff in there. And I saw like in like one, uh, one group, like deep thoughts. Somebody was like, I got a deep thought. Like, what's up with God? He's, he wants everything. Isn't he just a big narcissist? And I was like, oh, that's actually a really good question. That actually relates to what we're talking about this morning. I was like, I'm sure they probably don't want my answer, but you might. So um, I think it's very encouraging to realize, like, as we read this, we're like, what's up with God? Like, he wants exclusive love from his people. Why does he want that? Like, you think about scripture, Exodus chapter 20 says, I'm a jealous God, God says in verse 5. Verse 34, it actually says, the Lord whose name is jealous. But then we read the New Testament passages like 1 Corinthians 13. Like, love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't envy. Some translations use jealous. Love isn't jealous. You're like, so I can't do it, but God can? What's going on here? Like, why does God want everything? And I think that's a good question to ask. It's very pressing in this passage right here because Israel's like, why can't we share it with Baal? Why not? What's the big deal? And the answer is, God's jealous about his honor because he deserves it. In Isaiah 48, 11, he says, my glory I will not give to another. God made everything. God is worthy of all praise. He is the object of all glory and all honor. And he's like, I'm not sharing. I don't need to. That's the explanation. And, and so, yeah, we don't get to share in that. And so God's like, I rightfully have shown the, the nation of Israel mercy and love. And in response, like, I want their devotion. And, and we might kind of, kind of scoff at that and think, you know, 
well, yeah, the nation of Israel, they're worshiping idols. That's silly, right? Like, I don't have any idols in my house. Right? Like, I know as you think about the world stage even right now, like, idolatry is a very real thing. I know it's kind of hard to be reminded of that as we think about the world stage. But there's actually a lot of idolatry going on. God is definitely not pleased with that. But for most of us, I'm just going to operate with the assumption that at your house and here in this building, we don't have any idols. So we're like, oh, we're in the clear. We're good. I think the idol that most of us have is a little bit more deceptive, though. It's actually pretty easy. You can find it in the mirror. It's you. That's our cultural idol right now. You're the cultural idol. You do everything for you. You are the source of all meaning. You're the most important thing. You're the most wonderful thing. I think if you're, you're struggling, you're like, no, it's not me. Right? Like what, then, then you probably have something else. Like, what is the thing that if God took it away from you, you'd be like, I'm mad at God. God is not good because he took this thing away from me. I think it's a really, there's some really good diagnostic questions to realize, like, yeah, you didn't make your idol out of metal or silver, probably, but you definitely have one. And God calls us to exclusive love to him. And isn't it good that he's a good God, right? Like, it's not like we're getting, you know, you know kind of tied into a relationship that's terrible. God is a good God. Verse 5 is going to remind us of that. But I think it's helpful to dwell on this and look at verse 3 and 4 and be reminded God's not interested in sharing you with, with other things or other people. Let's look at verse 5. We shift from a marriage picture to now just straight prophecy. This is outward looking. Verse 5 begins with afterwards. Like we've set aside the marriage analogy of Hosea and Gomer and now we're looking out into the future. And it says, Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in the fear of the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. The prophecy ends on a note of hope. Isn't that good? Like, you think about like some movies you watch, some stories you hear. They just end on downers. And it's like, tune in next time. Like, oh. But here, it ends on a note of hope. Something to look forward to. Like there's something good coming around the corner. There's something to be excited about for the nation of Israel. Even in this moment of deep darkness, God's like, hey, by the way, there's going to be a season of not-so-pleasantness where we're going to purify this whole thing. But on the other end of it, there's going to be something beautiful. So encouraging, right? Like, so helpful to look at this and realize, like, again, Hosea and his wife just kind of drop into the background because the thing that's being prophesied is so far off. And we still can anticipate it, too. Like, we're waiting for verse 5, too. We anticipate this, and it's so cool to see this here and be encouraged by it. God's desire for the people of Israel was to assure them of a future hope. Against the backdrop of spiritual darkness, against the backdrop of all kinds of terrible things going on, God is like, there's something so much better coming. Things the way that they were intended to be will happen. This is not the end. God doesn't just leave the nation of Israel in like, well, you did wrong and I'm going to discipline you and that's the end of it. It's not good. It's really good news for us too, Christian. This is the God that we worship a God that gives hope, even in dark situations. 
They might have been tempted to despair, but look what cool thing is here in verse 5. It says they'll seek the Lord their God and David their king. You're like, huh, that's kind of funny. You got God and David right next to each other. Isn't it so cool to look back on this and be like, oh, I know a little bit more about verse 5. It's talking about Jesus. Right? Like, isn't it so cool to see that Hosea is like looking forward, not knowing how the redemption of God's people is going to work. But now we, 2,000 years later, can look back on Christ and be like, that's how God's going to redeem his people. The work of Christ. There it is. And so it's so cool to see this sitting right here in the text. And we can be like, this makes more sense to us now. We can be even more encouraged because we know how what Hosea looked forward to in faith, he's anticipating going, God's going to work this out. I don't know how. Now we can look back and say, I know how. To the person and work of Christ. How awesome is that? That's very encouraging to us to be able to look and see what God has begun in Christ. And look at the result of what's going to happen in verse 5. It says, And they shall come in the fear of the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And so as God would have it, in Tuesday evenings, we've been going through a study on the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is directly discussed in that book. So I thought instead of trying to butcher paraphrasing what the author says, I just put it up on the screen. Um, In talking about this verse, the author reminds us, he's like, here is not a fear that stands on the flip side of the grace and goodness of God. It is the sort of fear Hosea described in verse 5. It's a fear that, as Charles Spurgeon once put it, leans towards the Lord because of his very goodness. I think we often think of like, oh, you know, the people are going to be scared of God because they're so terrified of him. But here you have set against that the driving force for them fearing the Lord, worshiping him as his goodness. Not what you would expect. Right? Like, God's kindness and goodness leading people to have a response that, that is, is trembling at what kind of God, who's the creator of the world that I have offended, what kind of God would graciously love me and want to be in right relationship with me, lavish his riches and grace upon me? What kind of God is that? Right? Like, if that doesn't get, like, a healthy fear of the Lord in you, I don't know what does. You're like, wow, I can't imagine that. That's that's more than I can imagine to think about a God that's that good to a people that bad. It's a good God. It's a good God we worship. And, And what we see in part right now through the work of the Spirit, we see... That there are people who, who fit that description that fear the Lord and they return to the Lord and they worship David their king. But we're only seeing this in part, right? Like the fullness of this has not been experienced by any means. There is a coming day that is so much better. There's something coming around the corner that is going to be so much better than the spiritual darkness. And what I worry about these days with Christians is we're too caught up in the darkness. We're looking at all the problems. We're looking at all the things going on. That's all we're seeing. Friend, there's something so much better. God is doing something, and he's going to continue to do something. And what the people needed from the prophet Hosea was the encouragement to reconcile their broken relationship with God, but also to not lose hope that God is doing something very beautiful. 
God is going to, to receive the full worship of his people. He is going to bless his people. He loves his people. There's something so great coming around the corner. It's very helpful to remind ourselves of this. You can get so downcast. Be like, God, what are you doing right now? Verse 5 calls us out of that and reminds us something better is coming around the corner. Christ is coming back. And everything that we hope for out of verse 5, people, everyone, being in right relationship with God, being blessed by his goodness and fearing him, all of those things are coming, not only for the nation of Israel, but us as believers, as we're grafted in by faith, we participate in many of the same blessings. And I want you to remind, remind yourself too, like this is the northern kingdom. These are the people that very famously in First Kings said, what part do we have in David? God's saying, hey, people that have disavowed David, he's going to be your king again. Well, that's so cool. Like the very people that in his face were just like, go away, God. God is like, no, that's not the end of the story. There's something so much better coming. It's very encouraging to read through this. Again, like a very strange portion of the history of Israel. Right? Like a very dark portion of it. But at the end of it, it points to something very hopeful. Let's pray. God, thank you for the reminder from Hosea. Thank you for a broken marriage that reminds us of something far greater. God, we don't thank you for broken marriages by any means. You have, have no desire to see that. And I pray even as we're reminded of the love of God, as we close this morning, I pray that you would, would by your grace, allow us to show the same love that Hosea has shown. Help us to demonstrate that to the world as we go out. I pray that you would give us the, the, the right words, the right ways, the right actions and behaviors to demonstrate the love of God to, to, a, to a group of people that, that has, wants nothing to do with you. God, thank you for the hope that you've given us in Hosea, that amidst the spiritual darkness, you love in a way that we would never love. We look at that and we're like, that's crazy. I'd never do that. And yet you have loved each one of us. If we're in you, if we're in Christ, thank you for the love that you've shown for us. Fill our hearts with gratitude even now as we sing. Your son's name.